Hello and welcome to episode 531 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan and today we have a very, very special guest, a young man who has been the face of poker for two decades. He's won in the cash streets, he's won in the tournaments, he's won in the YouTube streets, he's grinding fitness, he's everywhere. It is, of course, Daniel Negreanu. Daniel, thanks for doing the pod. How's it going? Appreciate the young man intro. Right. Because, you know, I go by Kid Poker because Kid Rock's what, like 60 now? He's still Kid mm-hmm. Rock. I mean, I feel like I can keep the tag for a while. Exactly. I have not changed my profile picture since I was about 24 years old and I'm 40 now. So uh, I'm going down with the ship. Yes. Yeah, like, sure. you know. uh, okay. I know a lot, a lot of people ask me, hey, how, how did Daniel cross paths here? How did Daniel find this podcast? Shout out to Christian Sanchez, who I believe, I believe is Daniel's golf coach. Christian is a, friend slash listener of the show he's a fantasy football grinder he set this up daniel however though i don't think is a fantasy football player can correct me if i'm wrong there however i do know that daniel's a serious fantasy hockey player what's going on with your fantasy acumen these days daniel where are you at in the fantasy world well first and foremost on christian he's not just my golf coach he's an all-around athlete he runs my youtube channel videos i mean he, he does a lot of stuff He's, he's not just the golf guy. He used to be just the golf guy. And then we started to put more and more responsibility on him. As far as football goes, fantasy football, at the very you know beginning of fantasy football, I was very, very into it um, because I come from a fantasy background. I've been in the same fantasy hockey league since 1996. Mm. Before fantasy was even a thing, we created a league that is like no other. And it's still the same group uh, that I'm in from 1996. So like there's 20 guys and we've had maybe three or four turnover in all that time. Um, but yeah, sort of football tilted me one year, I remember. And I just stopped watching NFL outside of the Buffalo Bills. I grew up a big Buffalo Bills fan, diehard hockey fan. And I just found that a lot of stuff, I can't like a lot of stuff the NFL was doing was really pissing me off. Mm-hmm. So I stopped watching and I, which is crazy because I enjoyed the sport. I just stopped caring that much. Yeah. Well, that's a Canadian point of view, right? You grew up in Canada where I assume there was people following the CFL and betting on the CFL and playing Fantasy CFL, or am I wrong? Or were you guys following NFL more than CFL? It's funny you mentioned CFL because a guy named Geraldos Vulgaris, who many yeah. of you will know um, from his time with the Dallas Mavericks and whatnot, he sort of created his bankroll betting on the CFL because uh, there wasn't a lot of action on it. But I still think I grew up in Toronto. CFL was kind of an afterthought. People watched the NFL. CFL, no one cared. It was eight teams. Two of them had the same name. I mean, eight-team league. You had the Ottawa Rough Riders and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I'm like, really? Really, guys, you can't think of anything else? Like, and I don't know, you know, I don't pay attention to the CFL. I never really did all that much. I did like the Argos a little bit, but no, even to Toronto, like Toronto could support an NFL franchise easily. Sure. Um, I'm sure you were aware of DFS, Daily Fantasy Sports, when it first started to get popular. It was like 2013, 2014, 2015. It was, if when you were in poker at that time, it was like unavoidable to come across people talking about DFS. You might remember... Aaron Jones, A.E. Jones from back in the day, he won the biggest prize ever in DFS. I believe it was $5 million back in 2015. But a bunch of guys, not just Aaron, a bunch of guys left poker to concentrate on DFS. I, I don't remember you ever playing. I, I could be wrong. Or what are your memories of the DFS kind of boom hitting around 2015? Yeah. Well, yeah, I obviously don't play in Nevada because it's illegal. Yeah. <laughs> you can't gamble <laughs> on sports in Nevada. Okay, whatever. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, obviously when, you know, at the very beginning, when this sort of came, came a thing, you saw a lot of poker players that, you know, are very 
they delve into numbers and statistics and things like that. And that's what they did with online poker. So it was a natural progression for them to not only to now ruin fantasy sports. It's essentially what they did in a lot of ways, right? It's just true. I'm being honest, right? So anytime you have like Sharpies, like they are, and you know, when they're, I think that, I don't know if it's changed, but there was an unlimited number of entries they could enter into these things and they could optimize lineups better than anybody else. So like, you know, your average weekend warrior is like, oh, I'll put 20 bucks and he's drawn dead. Like he may win occasionally, right? But in the long run, he's going to be losing and, you know, the Sharpies are going to scoop up all the money. So that was, a you know, unfortunate. Um, but uh, yeah, I never got deep into it because I, I, I don't do it for the money. Like I love my fantasy hockey league more than anything in the world. And it's about pride. And sure. I'm in my playoffs right now and I'm losing my mind because too much fun. <laughs> yeah, now there is a cap of 150, you know, and, and but what you said about how sharps interact with a general ecosystem of a peer-to-peer gambling game it's so similar to poker and i think that's why a lot of poker guys left you know anytime you have a peer-to-peer skill game like there's going to be people that find edges and there's gonna be people that get left behind i do want to ask you about some of that poker stuff in a second here but i guess you've never been tempted right i've made the drive from vegas to prim i'm sure you're familiar with prim it's the first stop over the border in california just to register i feel like you would enjoy daily fantasy hockey maybe i'm wrong but I, i'd love to see you get in there and battle oh no i did it in the outset i mean i was doing some fantasy hockey and i was doing pretty well this was before a lot of the guys you know came in to kill but again i wasn't doing there wasn't huge money you know i was doing it just kind of like for fun but the thing is i just have so many sweats of my own um like with my own fantasy stuff so, so every morning I, I wake up and the first thing i do is i have a feed on twitter for those of you that don't have lists on twitter Highly recommend you can formulate and you can pin them at the top, right? So you make your lists and then instead of like, you know, on the top, looking at that for you, which oh. is designed to make you angry, yeah. that's all it's there for. It's like, Ooh, what can piss you off today? So instead of that, I just see fantasy hockey, hockey, Vegas, golden Knights, and I can click on all those. So I spend about an hour just on every single angle of like fantasy hockey that I can, you know, for the day. And then I, you know, pretty much spend most of the day making sure that all my lineups are good. <laughs> Could not agree more about lists on Twitter, especially with the way things have gone the last few months with Twitter. The for you thing, you're just asking for trouble when you're on the for you. Couldn't agree more about lists. Great advice. Anyways, I'm really into these fitness sports bets. You mentioned Christian is, was your golf coach. I I assume you hired him because you were playing some prop bets, some side bets. There's been some legendary stuff written and and discussed about some of these high stakes Vegas golf things i'd love to hear some stories if you have any mostly because these sports fitness bets are like my favorite thing to do you have no uh, idea what i'm talking about but i played a a tennis match i had my racket i played a professional tennis player who had a frying pan Uh, i've played brandon adams in a bunch of uh tennis matches which have been great fun what about golf why hire christian any stories that you can tell the people from the prop betting golf days oh i got a nice brandon adams golf story too that i played with him (laughs) But before I get to that, yeah. So when I met Christian, before I did, uh, I was down probably two, three million golfing. You know, just had no chance. Like every time I played with somebody, say, what do you shoot? Say, I'm a bogey golfer, you know, which is about round 90. And they'd shoot a 75 and say, best round of my life. And I'm like, holy fuck, that's three times in a row I played with a guy and he had the best round of his life. Hmm, I bring out the best in people, huh? So I ran into a lot of the hustlers. And again, I suck. And one of the biggest drawbacks of being really bad at golf is like when something goes wrong and you're, you're dead, right? you don't know how to fix it. Like, I don't know. Oh, it's my grip. It's something like that. So I noticed a lot of other guys had somebody, uh, a buddy of ours, Eric Lindgren, mm-hmm. said, you should work with Christian on this little thing that I was doing. And I said, okay. And, you know, 
the first thing he did was took me to the range and he's like, all right, we need to fix your grip, get your posture right. Simple stuff, right? But stuff that's like, whoa, mind blowing. And then, you know, I started, uh, I hired him full time for all my golf matches and stuff. And he was instrumental in one big golf bet that I made, which was a silly golf bet. At the time, I was still terrible. I couldn't break 100 um, <laughs> and playing million dollars, million dollar matches. <laughs> but then I, we were drinking, me, a couple guys were drinking late at night. And so for some reason, it comes up that the back tees at TPC Summerlin, I play the front tees. So you're talking about 6,300 yards versus about 7,000, mm-hmm. which not good for a guy who hits a 220 when he nails it, mm-hmm. right, off the tee. So I make a bet that I can shoot 80 from the back tees, and I have a year to do it. Okay, well, for three months, I traveled to Europe. I had a couple other things going. All of a sudden, we're four weeks out, and I haven't really played. So that four weeks was 7 a.m. wake up, practice for an hour, play 18. Don't eat lunch, nothing like that. Eat on the course. Practice another hour, another 18. Another hour practice, another nine. So then, and then practice till dark. So 8, 8, 9 p.m. And so, you know, all of a sudden we're in the 90s and then we're starting to, you know, creep up in the mid 80s really quickly. And the last round was just epic. I mean, uh, it's a long story. I'll keep it as short as I can where I was two under through seven somehow, right? And this is like, I can't hit greens. I don't hit the greens because they're too far. I'm driver, three wood, chip and putt, mm-hmm. right? But I'm very good at chipping and putting clearly. So with four holes to go, an easy one followed by the last three tough holes, I have to just bogey out all four holes. I double the first one, of course, right? I make a huge, now I need to make a par in one of the tough three ones. I make a 25 foot snake putt to make par. And then the last two holes were identical. It was crazy. Driver, three wood, perfect. Mm -hmm. And chipping, which is my bread and butter, shank it. Nice. Mm -hmm. Now I have a hundred foot two putt. Hit it six feet past the hole, make the comebacker. Mm -hmm. The last one, there's 70 carts, like everyone in the thing. (laughs) I bet 550,000 on this one. So I remember like, it was a six footer. I did the same thing, pulled it, pulled the chip hundred yards. And now I'm six feet past the hole. I I'm a good putter, but my putting stroke for those that can see, I was like, I went like this and I fell down Oh no! as the putt and it starts to go to the right, but somehow the, the golf gods trickled it back in and it, you know, it went in. So I wow. shot the 80, which was pretty, pretty insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing about two things I'd say about playing golf bets is it's really hard to get a handicap. Like you said, somebody can say anything on their handicap. How, how do you verify? It? And there's a lot of scumbags out there, especially when you're playing for a lot of money. That's number one. Number two, it strikes me that even if you get the handicaps perfectly correct, the player who's better is always going to have an advantage. His range of outcomes is smaller, right? Like you might be able to shoot uh, 75 one day, but a way bigger portion of your outcome is worse. So I don't know. I always feel like it always ends up uh, favoring the better player, which is always not me. So yeah, I try to avoid the golf, the golf betting streets, but I hear it sounds like I disagree fun. completely with what you just said. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Okay. Cause I mean, what you said makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. From a logical perspective, but here's the issue, right? So what do you shoot? What do you normally, you're, you're oh, good? I'm terrible, like over a hundred for sure. Okay. So a guy like that's, that's a scratch golfer. He's going to shoot between 70 and 74, right? Yep. So you're going to match up to that. There's not much he can do. Right. So let's say you're getting a stroke a hole because it's, it's important how you match up. If you're just doing it based on number of strokes and betting like 5,000 bucks per stroke. Yeah. I, I agree the, the you know, the good golf, but if you're just betting by hole and you're giving a guy a stroke a hole, this guy who's going to shoot a hundred, if he shoots 90, he's going to destroy the, the good yeah. play because there is so much variance. Right. And the thing is, is when he, when he makes an 11 or a 12 on a hole, 
it doesn't burn it doesn't burn you that bad you just lose the hole it's no big deal but if he does have a string of like seven or eight that you know pars or bogeys you're just gonna you there's nothing the pro can do sure sure yeah i get that i always manage to lose but it is what it is uh we actually got a question from the pit boss he said what's the most daniels wagered on round of golf and what's his handicap i don't know if daniel's playing anymore are you playing anymore daniel is there still good action in the golf streets out there in vegas and uh and yeah if you would care to comment they want to know what's the most you've ever wagered on a round of golf yeah so it's an interesting question uh because we haven't golfed in like two years but i'm gonna okay. get out once the weather's been terrible yeah but i plan on getting back out there um as far as the handicap thing too because you sort of mentioned this like i i have a handicap like i actually would do it properly but everybody else who's a gambler you say, what's your handicap? They say, oh, I'm about a 12. And yeah. how they do it in their head is, well, they shoot about 84 on average, right? That's their average score. And they say that's their handicap. But as you know, as those that golf know, that's not how handicaps are calculated. You take your last 20 scores and you take the average of your 10 best, right? So, the, so they're not a 12. They're like an eight or <laughs> you know, something like that. So you can't match up with guys like that. But the biggest bets that I had, were scramble matches and Christian, this is crazy because this is like the first week I started working with Christian and he thought he was going to be fired after this round <laughs> um, for sure. Like the first, he's, he's, this is a guy, he's a good golfer, right? But this is a lot of pressure sure. for a new, new boss and you're playing 20,000 a hole, right? Against we in a twosome. So it was our score combined against these other two. And I'm playing great. I'm playing from the up tees. I shoot like an amazing round, 81 for me. Okay. Christian is supposed to shoot about 70. He shoots about an 80. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm fired. Luckily, you know, we actually ended up winning because of my score. But after that, then we started doing these huge scramble matches. It was four of us against Patrick Antonius and a few others. And we had these bets where, like, I mean, in, in these scrambles, you're going to shoot between 56 and 61 kind of yeah. thing. So really, really good. Um, and we had four of us. They had three. And I think they misjudged how valuable having four putts are, especially when we had four guys on our team that could all putt. They had three guys. One was an ace. He was the best player by far. He's better than Christian for sure. And, you know, but the, he, he was the only one that was really good at putting. So we won a couple million back-to-back years mm. um, doing that. Perfect. All right. I, I want to get to poker. I, I've heard your poker origin story, which honestly sounds a little bit similar to mine. I also started my quote-unquote career. I use that term very loosely, but playing you know, 612 and 1020 limit hold'em. I was at Borgata. I think you started at up in Canada playing a limit hold'em. You went on to be rich and famous. I went on to do fantasy football videos for my Honda Pilot on Friday night. But nevertheless, I, I remember when cash game started because I was already playing poker at the time in Atlantic City. And when No Limit Cash Games first started, I mean, this did not exist. This was like something weird out of the blue. And I was actually stupidly really stubborn about it. I thought these were just idiot kids with sunglasses the game played so slow i could make more and i could enjoy myself more playing limit hold'em turned out to be like one of the worst takes of all time and i rectified it relatively quickly but what do you remember about the transformation from limit to no limit because i don't encounter too many people these days anymore who started their career playing limit hold'em it's like you tell someone that they think you're you know a dead dinosaur or something like that but lucky for me like back then just like you limit hold'em was my job 10 20 limit hold'em monday to friday noon to eight 40-hour weeks, making about 40, 45 bucks an hour, okay? That was the job. The good news for me was, even before No Limit Hold'em cash games became a thing, there were tournaments, and a yeah. lot of them were no limit. Yeah. So on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, I was out there playing these $20 tournaments, getting a lot of experience in No Limit, so that by the time I was 21, you know, and more, you know, No Limit was happening, um, I was well-suited for it, right? But but you're right, I cut my teeth on, limit, people don't realize this, but Limit Hold'em 
was always the biggest tournament, the World Series of Poker and others. Yeah. Like I won a tournament. I just posted a Instagram post. It was like 1997. It was a hundred dollar buy-in, hundred dollars. Okay, limit hold'em. I won fourteen thousand. <laughs> like that's a lot of buy-ins. Bro. Yeah, that was the game back then. Everybody just played limit hold'em. That was that was the game for sure. Uh, do you play cash anymore? You know, everybody sees you in the tournament streets. Everybody sees you at the World Series playing this insane, insane schedule, going everywhere for tournaments. Do you play cash anymore? Do you have any desire to play cash? Uh, anymore because i mean for some of us who grew up playing cash it's kind of hard to to move away from you seem like you've kind of honed in mostly on tournaments so here's the thing right imagine yourself you're me for now right and so what is the goal of playing cash make money right for sure what if you don't give a fuck about money <laughs> how rich what if you yeah. don't give a fuck? i'm serious what if you yeah. don't give a fuck about money yeah. how boring is that yeah. right is that's like a job you know tournaments are fun there's leaderboards and point systems and trophies and wins so for me, that excites me. Occasionally, I'll play in one of these streams here locally, you know, uh, and play some cash or whatever. But, yeah. um, but I truly, and this is going to sound crazy to people, even when I didn't have any, everyone's like, oh, you know, yeah, because you're rich, you don't care about money. I didn't care about money when I didn't have it. I just wanted to get good. I wanted to win. And I think that's, there's like a underlying lesson in that. A lot of people like, you know, and they tell me they want to do something. I'm like, if they say the reason is because they want to get rich, then they're less likely to be successful than someone who says, I love it. Yeah. I love doing it. I want to be an actor. Why? Because I want to be rich and famous. Okay. But do you love acting? Yeah. No, I mean, I just want to do it because it's a, it's an avenue. No, you're probably not. If you don't love the craft and you don't just love it, then you won't be successful. And I never cared about the money, which is partly why I think I sort of lived from a mindset of like abundance yeah. rather than scarcity. If there's a, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, people say it all the time. It's hard to internalize it. If you're thinking about your chips on the table as actual money, you're going to have a way harder time than people who would look at the chips as a game and you're trying to get to the top of the leaderboard. Like Daniel said, I'm curious what advice you would have for people these days in terms of game selection. I think it's pretty clear that no limit mid stakes cash is very, very difficult game to beat these days and obviously probably high stakes as well unless you get in certain games tournaments are much softer but there's gonna be so much variance there if someone was just starting in poker what would your game selection kind of outlook for them be like so let's say for example i'm you know broke and i've always i've actually fantasized about this because it's kind of fun like let's say i only had like five thousand bucks and that's it i would personally peruse the the poker rooms the live poker rooms in las vegas you know, online poker, as you said, you know, there's some sharpies and, you know, some tough players to play in at the high stakes. So I think you'll find the softest berry patches are going to be like Friday, Saturday nights in Las Vegas. You know, these one to, one to three, two, five dollar games that are no limit. And, uh, you know, the thing about which was surprising for me um, between limit hold'em and no limit is limit hold'em. Weak players, bad players are going to win a reasonable amount of time. Like you're just, sure. just going to catch even if they play with their cards face up, they're still going to win. Right. With no limit, you know, in, in a relatively tough game, they're almost never going to win. So they're like, they're just going to lose most of the time because you, you have so much more control in no limit. So if you were on an upstart bankroll type thing, I would play no limit cash as a job, right? And then look to supplement here and there by some free rolls or looking to, you know, play some tournaments like GG Poker. We just had a tournament right now. No joke. We, we, we guaranteed $10 million and this isn't for $150 buy, which is just really dumb. And I told them there's no way that's going to fucking hit. And they're like, yeah, we know probably won't hit. So I, I put my neck out online and I said, I'll guarantee that there's at least a million dollar overlay. And if not, I'll put up the million dollars. Mm. Yeah. That just finished today. 
and I, the skin of my teeth, the overlay was like one million and twenty four thousand. <laughs> you had a nine million dollar prize pool for one hundred fifty dollar buying. So if you're an up and comer looking for spots like that, looking for these huge guarantees and things like that online, that's definitely worthwhile. Um, and you know, other than that, just playing like live cash. Yeah, it, you mentioned live cash, no limit. It, it strikes me that. A lot of the games, and I don't play that much poker anymore, but it strikes me that a lot of the games now where that are, look the softest to me, at least, are PLO or mixed games. It's just harder, I think, to learn some of those games. And so new people now are almost exclusively trying to get better at No Limit. My thought was maybe No Limit isn't the answer if I was just starting now. Maybe some of these other kind of variants of games. Any thoughts there? Absolutely. Well, I love mixed games. Absolutely freaking love all the mixed games. And PLO, I enjoy that too. I'm actually going to be playing in a PLO exclusive series next week at the Poker Go studio, which is going to be a lot of fun for those PLO players. Come on down. <laughs> Buy-ins are like 10, 25,000, whatever. But, you know, you can come gamble. Um, but as for PLO, the one thing you'd have to be ask yourself is how comfortable are you with, like, extreme amounts of variance? Yeah. Because PLO is different than Hold'em. Remember when I said Hold'em is a game where you have control? So you kind of, you know, have PLO, you're going to have streaks where you're like, holy shit, I just lost 15 buy-ins in a row. And... There's nothing I could do, you know, because the equities run closer. Let's say you have a beautiful PLO hand. For those that don't know, something like ace, ace, king, queen with two hearts and two spades. That's a monster fucking hand, right? Yeah. Well, if a guy's playing a jack, eight, seven, and a four, you're only like 60-40. I know. Pre-flop, right? So there's a lot more decisions being made after the flop. And when equities are close, that increases variance. So that's dangerous for people. Mixed Big games, time. the struggle for mixed games is, and I love them, is that it's it's hard to find low limit mixed games. Yeah. So you'd have to like be somebody who's financially okay to play in some higher stakes stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. I want to ask about being an ambassador. So you were obviously famously one of the faces of poker stars. Uh, it can be really hard, right? And like this whole ambassador thing, I think is nuanced and deserves a better conversation than what it gets on Twitter with people dunking on each other. I, I was a brand ambassador for DraftKings. I had no fucking idea what was going on behind the scenes. I was not involved in any decision-making whatsoever. You took a lot of heat from the poker community when the Supernova Elite program got canceled in this, you know, dirty way. I never thought that like, oh, Daniel pulled the plug on this. Like, cause I know like DraftKings never asked me about any business decision whatsoever. Any reflections on that whole thing? I know now you're representing GG Poker. Any thoughts on the whole brand ambassador thing? Yeah, for sure. I'm, you know, obviously, as you said, I'm with GG Poker now and like super happy with how that all rolled out because I wasn't planning on doing any other ambassadorships. I was going to just sail off into the sunset. They came to me with like this epic software and I just liked the guys and had a lot of trust, which is where, you know, trust is an important aspect when you do this, right? Because as you said, you're not there under, you're not like involved in every single decision just because you're an ambassador, right? So you have a lot of trust. And when, you know, Stars was run by Isai Scheinberg, you know, the trust was there. And then he sold and, it, you know, now there's a new company involved and they have different goals and stuff like that. So um, then they spring this one on me and I'm like, this is brutal. This is going to destroy your brand forever. And I was on the phone with David Bazoff, who was part of the guy, Amaya group who took it over daily, trying to explain to him. I was like, listen, I agree 1 billion percent that the system you have is doomed to fail. And I said so before. And what I'm talking about is a system where it was a rewards program system that benefited people who would play 30, 40 games at a time and just fold, right? You just do that. Like, you know, play super tight, only play pocket aces and you might make 15, 20,000 a year. I said, this is gonna cannibalize all the games and it's gonna destroy it. When you're starting out a site, that stuff makes sense because you need bodies, right? 
But then what happens is it starts to eat itself. So I knew that was a problem. The issue was, as you mentioned, they wanted to cut it out immediately, but there were people that played all year get with, with the incentive of saying, if you reach this status in year A, in year B, you will receive these benefits. And now in November, you're telling people, yeah, we're no longer doing that. Holy shit. I mean, listen, I know this is legal. Airlines do it all the time. They screw with your air miles and stuff. But guess what? People people hate the airlines for that reason, right? So I was in a tough spot. I mean, every single day, I'm not kidding, four to six hours a day, I was on the phone with him. And I would get him sometimes to a point where he said yes, right? He was like, yep, okay, we'll delay it. And then his people internally would call and come back. How about this? How about this? I'm like, oh my God, here we go. And so, because what I was saying is, all right, just you can still make this move, right? But honor the, you know, what you what you said you would to these sure. people. The people and grinded then, for ten months, yeah. Right. And there was some language in a tweet or in some messaging, like in early the year, they said they might make some tweaks to it. But on the website, it flat out said, "Do this, you get this," right? And you got to honor that. So that was super disappointing for me. And I obviously, like you said, I took a lot of flack. And that's part of what being an ambassador is. They look at you as the face and they're like, you're representing these people that are doing bad things. And I'm like, yeah. you're right. You know, this is brutal. But there's also the as- other added aspect of when you work for a company, you're not going to like or agree with everything that they do. It's just not possible. Like you work at Kmart, wherever it is, I'm sure there's some things, but they're charging double for this or that, that you're not going to love, right? Um, so yeah, that was probably the most difficult time for me as like an, in any sort of ambassadorial role because I knew what they were doing was wrong, right? And I wasn't defending it. Like I never publicly said, oh, this is a great thing. You know, I was very open and honest, which was breaching my own potentially, potentially causing problems in my own country because you're not really allowed to badmouth, you know, your own comp. But, but anyway, that, uh, you know, that boiled over. And again, I still think that they have lingering effects from that and you know, now I'm happy to be with Gigi Poker, who does things very, very differently. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, uh, like you saw Larry David and Tom Brady, you know, like shilling for FTX, which obviously turned out to be a complete disaster. I know they took some heat for that. I mean, even Doug, who I know is, well, you know, Doug was on the show. I, I, I love Doug. He was one of your most outspoken critics, I feel like. And then he got tied up in this whole CoinFlex mix also when they were sponsoring on his podcast. So, yeah, it's just it's obviously a, a hard, hard thing. Um, okay. what's that saying? You either die a hero or live long enough to become a villain. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. I want to get to the heads up match with Doug here quickly. I'm sure poker nerds out there know what I'm talking about. Uh, Doug had challenged Daniel, not expecting Daniel to accept a very, very high stakes match in Doug's specialty online. No limit. Hold them. I think Daniel gained a lot of credibility, a ton of credibility in the community by accepting the challenge of Doug eventually to play heads up online. One thing that struck me, and I, you know, I enjoyed the whole match and following all the saga around it. One thing that struck me was the casual poker world, which Daniel brought in, getting introduced to solvers and balancing ranges and GTO and studying. And while that is cool, and I'm all for trying to elevate the discourse around things that I like, like poker, on the other hand, I felt like it was somewhat off-putting and intimidating to some people. Like, even me, I'm pretty into poker, but just knowing that if I want to play on these guys' level, I need to be studying computer simulations and memorizing bet sizing spots. It makes me not even really want to play that much anymore because I'm like so like I'm dead against these guys if I'm not doing that. So any thoughts there about the long-term health of poker and where it's going with all the solver and GTO and people kind of talking above the way it used to be, where it was just like, hey, let's go play some poker and we were in a bar and it was it was somewhat fun 
can totally relate to what you're saying. And I agree with you so much that um, for the average Joe, like hearing so many people talk about the amount of study required to play at the highest levels is like, okay, ain't nobody got time for that, right? So the question is, can you still succeed and do well without it? And the answer is yes. The question, the only issue is this, like I played him in his comfort place, which is online poker, right? I'm a live player. I've never, I never really got into the online poker street. So for me, I had a very short period of time to learn a lot of stuff because online is data driven, right? It's numbers, you know, and if you're going to play at the high stakes, yeah, you have to really dive in and understand theory at that level. But if you like to play poker and want to win and want to play low stakes or play like live poker, you don't really need, I mean, it helps. I'll say this, having a theoretical understanding of how the game works and studying game theories can't hurt you. It's going to help you. No question. But is it necessary to be dialed in or do what the computer says in a live scenario? Absolutely not. In fact, I would say that it's actually a mistake. It's a mistake to do that, right? So for example, a lot of what these kids do now is they'll randomize what they're going to do. They don't base it on the situation. They're like, all right, the GTO simulation said 15% of the time I should do this. So they look at a clock or they look, they, they look at their watch and it says, oh, it's 14. I'm going to do this, right? Yeah. So it sort of takes the decision away from them. They're not, they're not actually playing the game of poker. They're just playing the math. But actually, that can be suboptimal. For example, let's say, for example, I'm up against uh, old man Bill, right? And old man Bill just bet all of his chips on the river, okay? Well, in theory, I should call here 75% of the time because I have the right hand to call. And if I do that, it's fine, but it's not the best available option because you know what? If you're smart and you're paying attention, you know, oh, old man Bill does not bluff here yeah. ever. So forget of what the computer says. I'm going to play better than the computer can by exploiting him. Right. So now if Bill figured out, if Bill figured out, he's like, oh, Daniel folds too much against me and starts bluffing, he could exploit me. Right. But it's very, very difficult for people to change who they are and how they play. Sure. And, and, in, and in live poker, you get into those spots for sure. I, I think what, or maybe I misunderstand the whole thing, but I think what people, people who study a lot would say is that the inputs are wrong for Bill, right? Like may, maybe your inputs for Bill's range need to be different or, yeah, I don't know. My, I guess my, my point is that, man, it's gotten to a point where I think for people to try to win at reasonable stakes online, like is just so intimidating, you know? And, and well, so the, I, the thing you were saying with the Bill thing, right? Is like what I'm saying is these people do what what is correct in theory, not even thinking sure. about who Bill is or what Bill is. Yeah. There are some people who do what's called node locking, which is you can sort of formulate, okay, if this guy does this, how do I take advantage of that? Yeah. But most of the people that are trying to be like theory conscious, if you will, I call them slaves to the sim. Yeah. Where like they'll just whatever the computer tells them to do, they do, even when it's really, really stupid. Sure. Um oh, live poker, you mentioned. It is back, man. I don't know if you've noticed. I don't know how much you've been out there. It is crazy. They're like breaking records, live poker for tournaments. Can't get a table anywhere. Uh, live cash seems like it's booming in a big time as well. I'm not as familiar with what's going on online. You could tell me better if online is uh, booming in the same way. I do think that one obstacle for online is that there's been so much cheating accusations. And people... when. People say cheating, there's all kinds of different forms, right? Like ghosting, someone playing for you, a multi-accounting, you know, I have two accounts and I'm playing on the same site. I think the worst one, which I don't even know how you would police is RTA, real-time assistance. Somebody has a chart or a computer program on a computer next to them that's solving stuff for them as they're playing in real time. I, I feel like 
that stuff has gone mainstream enough to where it's kind of turning people off from online poker, but maybe I'm wrong. And it's also just such a juxtaposition to me to see online poker booming so hard. And yet I'm still sitting here in the United States. I'm in Colorado. I can't play online poker. So any thoughts on the future of online and all the cheating stuff and anything like that? Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question. And like we, like you said, there are varying degrees of what cheating is. And you know, like there's, like you said, just telling a friend, Hey, you should do this, you should do that versus like RTA, which stands for real time assistance. Right now, the reason these, this sort of came about where it went public. And I'm proud to say this is because GG poker caught them. Okay. Because they have algorithms and software to detect whether or not somebody is using the RTA. So the only reason this became a story was because we banned, you know, I think it was 40 to 60 accounts, which we found doing this at a, you know, on a, on a, on a grand scale. So it's always going to constantly be a fight, you know, in terms of technology, right? Where there's always going to be people that are trying to game a system, try to cheat, try to cut angles. So the organizers and the, and the software providers have to figure out ways to catch them. So it's like a little bit of a cat and mouse game. But I think they do a really, really good job. And online poker is booming. As I just said, GG Poker had an event where they guaranteed 10. I mean, this is $150 buy and there was no rebuys. And that's, without, like, and that's without Americans also, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, without right. Americans, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that's so many people. And yeah, I don't know. I assume that you are incentivized or GG is at least incentivized to get online poker back in the United States. A ton of people asked me to ask you when it's online poker coming to XYZ state. I doubt you have any insights there, but the people want it for sure. Of course. So here's the thing. There's some positive and there's some negative news, right? Positive news is you see some states regulating it like Nevada, like New Jersey, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Delaware, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's good news. Even better news is now they're starting to understand, all right, we have to share liquidity. We have to like use the same player pool. We're still cut off from the rest of the world, but whatever. It's better than nothing. Um, but the bad news is at a federal level, this is not even, this doesn't rank like on the, in the top thousand of issues that anyone there cares about or even understands. I've gone to Sacramento. I explained it to all the politicians. They're like, yeah, we get it. Like we'd like to, but Sheldon Adelson, who's now passed, he sure. pays my bills and he said no. Yeah. So like- so I don't think at a federal level you'll ever see it, but what you can what you can hope for is if you get the big states, like if you, if you could get California and New York, like just those two alone, then the others will follow suit. And you sure. know, now you're talking about something. But it is kind of really silly when you think of gambling, right? What is daily fantasy sports? It's gambling, right? So you, some people gamble with an edge, some don't. Sure. How's that any different than poker, sure. right? But fantasy got a carve out and poker didn't. So it's just a lot of shenanigans and stuff. But um, you know, yeah. it is. Well, I think DFS got themselves weren't not at, not at first, but eventually got themselves organized enough in the lobbying streets to get it carved out. And that's what poker needs too. I mean, obviously, like maybe we don't have the poker community doesn't have as much money as Sheldon Adelson did, but yeah, a few more high stakes golf matches, and maybe you can take a bag up to up to Sacramento. Um, <laughs> oh, David asked. Uh, David said, "Does Daniel think he'll ever do another heads up no limit or other game match again, like he did against Doug Polk? If yes." Who would his potential opponents be? Any interest in another uh, heads up for roles match that will captivate the poker community? I think if I did it again, and so here's the thing: that whole match, a lot of people don't realize this, but like I would have loved to have played it live, sure. right? Because I think live poker is like a next level of what poker's. It would have taken like ten years, but yeah, exactly the problem. <laughs> if you want to have any sort of substantial, substantial, uh, substantial, you know, sample size, yeah. it needs to be long. We started the match live. You know, it's a high, we started on Poker Go, the first 500 hands, and I was nicely ahead, 130,000. Thinking like, ooh, baby. And then we moved to online poker, and I got smacked pretty good. Um, 
but uh, I don't have any plans to do anything like that. I do think it'd be fun to, you know, create some more heads up tournaments and things like that. Um, but yeah, the whole, oh, this is what I was going to get to. The whole reason I accepted was because I thought we were under the impression, at least at GG, that we could play on the software somehow. Like we could make play this match on GG. And GG Poker was just starting out. And I really wanted to, you know, sort of put it on the map and have everybody talking about it. So I thought, you know, playing this match would get all the eyeballs and they, they could see the software and how awesome it is and things like that. Push came to shove. We're both in Nevada. There was no real legal way we could get that done. I thought maybe we could, but I already agreed, right? <laughs> so I can't be like, yeah, you remember what I said I'd play? Nah, I changed my mind. <laughs> now, now I was sort of stuck in it. I'm like, shit, I guess I got to put in some work. And, you know, obviously I got a lot better as time went on, but I didn't have enough time, really, to be honest. Like I had four weeks of prep time when truthfully, most people would need three to five years. If I had six months, I'd be very, very happy to have it. And I feel like I could do well because I already have sustainable amount of, a substantial amount of knowledge on the game. But four weeks was like, I'm pretty dead. For sure. Um, okay, last thing I want to get to before listening questions is, is the YouTube stuff. So, uh, you know, YouTube, people don't realize, I think, is a game that has to be played in an optimal manner. You know, we've been working on it really hard and trying to grow our YouTube in a organic way you clearly have put a ton of effort and i guess christian as well has put a ton of effort into your youtube channel you also let people into your personal life with the vlogs around the world series show your family and stuff like that i guess my question is is why first of all and what has any fallout of the youtube stuff been positive uh, or negative so youtube this is funny because i sort of did daily diaries here and there way back when when people had the big there's no cell phones it was like the big you know huge camera and they had to edit it or whatever and I remember just like early on in YouTube posting a few things here and there. And then it obviously started to gain some traction and my videos were starting to get, you know, noticed. And um, I didn't care. I wasn't even monetizing the channel. I just didn't care about that. And I wouldn't have monetized the channel. I thought eventually what it would be good for is sort of promoting things that I'm involved in, like GG Poker yeah. or Poker Go, whatever the case may be. Um, not really, again, not even monetizing. But then, you know, I had Christian come on. And sort of take over running the channel because I didn't really run anything. I just put videos out with no real plan. And he's like, we could get this out more. And he said, one of the things we'd have to change, which I didn't realize, is try to understand the YouTube algorithm is difficult. Like I don't know anything about it. But when you monetize videos, they push them more. Yep. I didn't know that. So we monetized them, not because I needed the like $18 yeah. from the video that I would get, but so that you know they would prioritize them and get them out to more people and that yeah. worked. And then Christian decided, you know that he wanted to take on a bigger role with it. And he's like, oh, let's create some content that's steady, you know? And then, cause like, listen, I pay him, you know, for golf. We ain't golfing right now. Yep. So this is an opportunity for him to sort of, you know, make some money on the side. But yeah, for me, I use it as sort of like a advertising marketing vehicle. Sure. A way to give back, if you will. But it isn't something I look at and go, ooh, I could make a lot of money on YouTube. Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. And you see in the comments, I mean, there's so many people, you know, like weekend warriors, they're out there playing one, two, and like, they love watching Daniel's vlogs from playing high stakes tournaments and stuff like that. The thing for me, and I thought about uh, vlogging actually, and like, I get uncomfortable with it to some degree, but I played the 25 K at the world series last year. And I was like, this would be really cool. People would be really into it. People are into high stakes stuff. Like you should come, I, I should vlog it. Right. I should bring a little camera like Daniel does and vlog it. I didn't want to be distracted while I was playing a 25K. I also didn't want to have to like defend myself. Like if I want to fucking four bet this guy because I don't like his face, I want to be able to do it. I don't have to defend it to a bunch of people on the internet. And so I decided not to vlog. Does any of that cross your mind while you're vlogging and playing? Man, this is distracting. 
man, I don't feel like doing this right now. I don't want to defend what I want to do right here, even if I think that it's thin or outside the box or whatever. Well, I'm glad you shared that because what you made as a decision, I think was correct then, right? Because if you didn't want to be distracted, you know, it can be. And if you didn't want to worry about being held accountable, if you will, by the public, then that's another reason to, to not do that. Because if, if, it, if it affects your decision-making where you're like, oh man, how am I going to explain this one? Instead of just going with what you think makes sense. For me, I, I like it. Because I look at it like a brain dump in a lot of ways. You know, like some people journal, where you write in a journal in the morning you write, and then you brain dump at night all the thoughts that you have, right? For me, I play a hand or whatever, and then I have to go through it. And I have to explain my thought process. And sometimes it's like, you know what? Made a mistake, right? So I can do that in the moment. I'm not worried. I don't care about the flack when people say you screwed this up. I'm like, I know better than you. And sometimes people think I made a mistake and I'm like, I didn't. It's, the, it's, it's, it's a play that made sense to me and I would do it again, even though I lost or it didn't work. So I have a lot of confidence in myself in that regard, but I do find for me, the vlogging isn't very taxing because all I do is I use a phone, yeah. right? And I have a little phone on a selfie stick. Sometimes I throw against the wall um, <laughs> if things go poorly and I just shoot what I shoot, right? And then it uploads to a cloud and then Christian and a team in Korea, they edit it and it's up the next morning, yeah. which I think is really, really relevant and important now with the world we live in, right? Nobody wants to watch a vlog that was like three weeks ago when they already know the outcome, right? But I also, during this phase, like I on pokerstake.com, I sell pieces of myself. So people can be along on the journey where you can put 20 bucks in and ride it with me, right? So imagine betting on sports or betting on a guy, and now every day you can you can sweat him through these 20 to 30 minute videos that I do in my vlog on, on YouTube every day. And it's really become sort of a, uh, a staple for a lot of people's viewing experience at the World Series. Yeah, I assume you'll do it at this year's World Series again. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to this year. and all. Last year's vlogs were like the most insane we've ever had because I had some crazy shit happen. <laughs> I had some random person from Lake Havasu tell me that I left a secret family back there <laughs> a million dollars or he's going to go public with it. I had another weird tinfoil hat woman say that I came up and pushed her. When I luckily, saw that one, yeah. And yeah. she was over there following me, right? But it's like, we live in a society where I didn't have the camera. Who knows? So we had a really, there's a lot of bizarre shit that happened at this year's World Series. A lot of drama that people, you know, could tune in for daily. Yeah. Well, listen, if you're living a, a credible, uh, you know, within integrity life, you should have a camera on you at all times. Sounds like when you're as famous as you are, people come up with these accusations. You hit them with the camera, say, no, not true. All right. You guys got in a lot of questions. I want to get to as many as I can here. Appreciate everyone who sent in questions for daniel question one from david dubia he says how badly does daniel want to throat punch phil helmuth now this is a, a a nuanced topic because i do think that phil helmuth has been generally good for poker do i think the way he berates people at the table is good for poker no but obviously you've played a lot with phil known him for a long time do you actually want to throat punch him sometimes david is asking never i said to me he's funny Right. And I think the key thing with people is like, you just can't take him seriously. Right. He's a character. I mean, that's who he is, but he's just sort of a character. It's not even like, it's just so bizarre. Like the things that he, like the things that he'll say, the things that he's constantly bragging about unprompted, you know, he just is a unique individual and watching him get upset or like lose is fun. Like I, he, I, I appreciate anybody, whether you like him or not, that move the needle. Right. And he does like some people tune in because they want to see him lose. Yeah. Some people tune in because they love them. They love the antics. It's a lot better than watching just like people stare at the wall for 30 seconds and then go, 
like that. So Phil's, you know, he's an interesting character. I don't want to throw punch him. I think he's good for poker overall. Um, again, because I, I think like characters are what matter. Question two is from All In Mike. He says, I'm getting back into poker after a long hiatus. What is the biggest differences in play of opponents today compared to the poker boom of the early 2000s? I'm sure you get this question all the time. Obviously, a ton has changed in poker. But yeah, if someone's getting back into it today after 15 years out of the game, what would you say the biggest differences are? I would say that the gap between what used to be like what we called the fish, you know, the really bad players and then like the pros, it's gotten a little smaller. I think most people who get into the game now have some idea of how to play. You know, they are, right, I got a raise and they've watched enough where they can sort of copy. They might not obviously be execute as well as the top pros, but I would say that, that that's probably the biggest difference. It's not as simple as just like sit there, be what we call a nip, wait for aces, and you're going to get some dummy to just give you all his money. It's, yeah. it's a little more nuanced than that. Sometimes when, when I was watching you play during like the boom and I was playing this, like trying to play at least a really aggressive style that I think a lot of, you know, like younger thoughtful people were playing were like, Hey, you know, like I'm opening up every pot. I'm three betting. I'm four betting. I, I'm five betting. You would play, especially in some of these like world series events, play this. I think you called it small ball style, which I don't study at all to know if this is true, but I feel like when I play against these like euros who are solver bros now, they're kind of doing what you were doing back then. We're like, small bets on the flop and uh calling uh, a ton uh they're not three and four betting nearly as much so like if from coming somebody coming back to the game now 15 years later i feel like it's almost a small ball approach that a lot of these guys are playing now would you agree there and any thoughts on that yeah i would say that my approach was ahead of its time and it's funny because at the time you'd have the the, the sort of the the, con the consensus opinion being what i'm doing is incorrect Right. And then they find after using solvers, they're like, oh, no, Daniel was right the entire time. And what I'm talking about is smaller race sizes, right? Playing, you know, a pot control style. And the other aspect of, for example, if you only have something like 11 big blinds and someone raises your big blind, you know, there used to be this idea that you had to just raise or fold, right? Move all in or fold. Oh, you got to move in or fold with like Jack 10 offsuit. I'm like, no, how about I call? If I flop a Jack or a 10, let's go. If not, I'll move on and keep the nine big blinds. So, a lot of the sort of the theories and the bet sizing things that I sort of created from my own mind have been sort of confirmed now, you know, that, that solvers and computers go, Oh, you know what he, what he was doing was right. And, and, and I think it's always worthwhile as far as poker to not be a sheep and just do what everybody else is doing. Cause especially with tournaments, the guys who succeed, the guys or girls who succeed the most are typically ones that go against the grain and you're like, what they're doing is crazy wrong. I'm like, okay, well then why is it working? right? Maybe there's something that you're missing. Yeah, no, for sure. That makes sense. I always thought that you were kind of doing it because like the people that you face in a World Series main event table, like there's no reason to be super aggressive and get it in, you know, 60% or something like that. But if you're playing a 25K at Aria with 30 people, maybe you'd be more like, it's more correct yeah. to try to push smaller. Edges. Yeah, you know, no question. You, you, you know, you, yeah. you make the most obvious point, which is that when I'm playing as really bad players, I'm going to take much less risk because sure. I don't need to. I'll find better spots, if you will. But if you're playing against bosses who are all really, really good, you have to take every spot. If you're, you know, 1% edge here, that's how you're going to succeed in this thing. You can't afford to wait for like the right spot because it's just not going to show up off. Question three from Aaron. He says, in the last 20 years, what was the lowest point of Daniel's poker career? Did you think of hanging it up? Any low points in the last 20 years you want to talk about? Not really, no. I mean, I've been pretty consistent throughout my career. I think in the year 2000, I probably 
experienced what I needed to, which was just like, I got money in 1999 after working hard. And then I just was living the Vegas life, golfing, go play some poker, drink some wine, drink some whiskey. No, no, not whiskey, whiskey, drink some vodka, just like be drunk and then play poker and lose and who cares. And then by the end of that year, I had no money left, right? Despite building up a big bankroll. And it was sort of a wake up call that, um, you know, I'd have to take this seriously. You know, I can't just be all loosey goosey eating a sandwich at the table. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> um, no, I had to take it seriously. And so that, that was like pivotal. Like I'm a big believer in this whatever it is you do that like mistakes are valuable, like making mistakes in life are super valuable. If you actually learn from, them, right. I look at like what you call breakdowns as an opportunity for a real breakthrough. Right. So that year of 2000, I did everything wrong. Right. But guess what? Because I did that, I don't do that anymore because I actually said to myself, that's wrong. And I know I don't do it occasionally or anything. It's just, I've, I rectify, I've rectified the, the path of the ship. Maybe along those same lines, uh, question four from Kenny says, how do you handle long losing streaks? Do you recommend the same to amateurs or aspiring sharp players? How do you handle long losing streaks, asked Kenny? That's very, very difficult for most people, right? And poker is a game where resilience is required. I went through a really bad streak for about two years, just not this year, but like the year before and whatever. Like I was like, holy shit, every time I'm all in and stuff is out of my control, I just keep losing no matter what I have. And it was crazy and it can happen and it can mess with your mind. So what you need to do in those moments is be introspective about, okay, is it luck or is it me? Am I missing things? You know, there's no value in, in really focusing on how, you know, you're a victim to circumstance. There's only value in starting to like fine tuning everything else. Right. And for some people, it's going to require a break. Like just take a, take, take a moment away from the table and sort of reset your bound. You know, if you're going to the table and you're feeling anxious, already when you first sit down you're not in the right mindset to play sure. you know so you so you have to wait until you're actually you know feeling good about your game question five from michael he says daniel watches some good competition shows that my wife and i also watch curious if daniel and amanda have stumbled into the phenomenon that is milf manor i don't even know if this guy's joking or if this is a real show but he's asking if you've seen milf manor because he knows you like these competition shows I just heard of MILF Manor from someone else the other day. I'm not watched. I don't even know the concept. My latest competition show, and it's so freaking funny and bizarre. It's like, a, it's called Physical 100 on Netflix. And it's Korean. It, yeah. Everybody's Korean, but, you know, they have subtitles. Yeah. And there's like these English people go, oh, wow, you have a great body. Oh, you must eat a lot of grilled chicken. Oh, you work out. And it's just the hair. Wow. Wow. It's so funny. But the show, the concept is really awesome. And I imagine, you know, the Americans will steal it. It's, it's, the, the Koreans know how to do reality TV. Yeah. my uh, I watch that show with my kids. They love it too. The, uh, the Physical 100 show. Uh, two more here. Question six from Bobby. He says, ask Daniel what he thought your equity, meaning my equity was in that 25K WSOP event. So I actually put this on Twitter and a bunch of people responded. And I'm curious what you think it sounds like other people are too. I have barely played poker in the last three years. I had some background where I had played a bunch of live cash, never above 10 and a quarter though. What would my markup or markdown be in the 25 K WSOP event, which by the way, I should tell the people this is not a normal WSOP 20. This is not normal 25 K. It got 360 runners or something completely ridiculous like that for the 25 K. But anyways, what would you make? my markup or mark down more likely? That's a good question, but it's also absolutely an impossible question for me to answer, right? It's like, I have no idea how you play, never played with you. 
you know, I, I understand what your background is a little bit, but without actually having any experience, you know, in terms of like seeing your decision making and stuff like that, I would just be throwing a dart at a wall. Right yeah. now, I would say this. The only way I can answer the question, is it possible you're plus EV? Absolutely. Because like you said, the field was, um, you know, abundant with like a lot of players. Oh, yeah. Now I can say with decent amount of confidence that if you played in one of these 35, 40 player fields in the 25 Ks with your not playing in three, four years, and you're probably not plus EV. Who oh, knows? Yeah. But obviously your chances increase at the World Series of Poker when you got 300 people. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know enough about you to say plus or minus. Yeah, something like, I think Sean Deeb said like 0.75 or something, which I thought was a little too low. I thought something like 0.85 or something was was probably was probably closer to right. And after seeing the field, I actually thought that maybe 0.9 was closer to right. But yeah, uh, clearly, clearly a dog to uh, a lot of these, most of the field. Um, all right, last question from BTC Bash. He says, would love to hear you guys discuss bathroom, bathroom strategy etiquette stories during live tournament poker breaks i have a feeling daniel has seen some things now if you watch the vlogs you know now daniel has his own room slash rv situation he doesn't go with the peons into the bathroom which is absolutely disgusting the bathroom at the rio i swear was the worst smelling thing i've ever been in in my entire life it's a little bit better now over at bally's uh and paris but yeah it's a total zoo during these bathroom breaks any stories and i guess you, you hated it so much you had to get the rv situation going no, so at the Rio, I understand that for people like you and whatever, and the peons, as you say, had it rough in those long bathroom lines, but I had an RV parked right outside that I could walk to in like less than a minute. And I had my own bathroom and I could have, you know, I had my own kingdom in there and it was a really nice place I could relax and stuff. Now, we moved to Bally's in Paris and I really wanted to have an RV there, but there was just no place to put it. So instead I have like a private room, but, and then this is, there's some good and bad about this, but... I am now forced to use the bathroom with the peon. Oh, baby. So I'm in there. But the good news is, is there are a lot of bathrooms. There's more bathrooms and they're bigger. So there are moments, there are times where you're like, all right, there's 12 stalls and like three of them don't have shit plugged in them. But like, you know, um, yeah, my strategy typically, uh, well, part of it I can't, ex can't share, <laughs> but um yeah, it's sort of changed and evolved now that we're at Bally's Paris. Uh, it's got to be crazy for you, too. Like, you're in the bathroom in line, and all these people are like, oh, there's Daniel Negreanu. Let's go say hi. He's, in, he's waiting to... The worst is I'm like, I'm holding my dick, and the guy's like, can I get a picture? I'm like, <laughs> what? He was like, really? <laughs> all right, well, thanks so much for being here, Daniel. Obviously, uh, most people listening to this are in America, but if they're not, I assume you want to tell them to play on GG Poker. Anything else? You want to tell the people about where to find you, how to find you, anything else you're working on? Yeah, well, obviously, my most active on Twitter, Real Kid Poker. Um, and, you know, of course, the YouTube channel, we're cranking out the Super High Roller Bowl series that I won. And I'm sort of doing a breakdown of the entire thing. You know, Christian's putting that together. And then it won't be too long before we're back in WSOP vlog territory on the YouTube channel. So check that out. Subscribe and all that stuff you're supposed to do. I don't know. All right. Thanks so much to Daniel for being on the show. We'll be back later this week with Silva to talk some NFL free agency for Daniel. For Christian, thanks so much for putting this together. For producer Luke, I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm -hmm.